Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show all about workers' rights and social justice. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Community Radio and broadcast right around the country on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Diana Beaumont. And I am Jack Barry. Later on the show, we'll be crossing over to Mexico where there's been some fairly massive protests, protests that have been led by the Teachers' Union. And in response to a fairly um, brutal government that's attacked its own people and repressed its own people with the latest incident of 43 students of a teacher's college being disappeared. But now we'll be crossing over to some commentary about the G20. A remarkable G20 meeting has just concluded in Brisbane, which was remarkable for the openly provocative language directed at China and particularly at Russia. Addressing the Australian Parliament before the G20 summit, the UK Prime Minister David Cameron criticised China's model of what he calls authoritarian capitalism, describing it as a creeping threat to our values. Meanwhile, US allied countries continue to escalate economic sanctions against Russia for its support of East Ukrainian rebels resisting the US-backed coup in Kiev, not to mention also escalating attacks on the Syrian government with which the Russian government is allied. This must have been the tensest backdrop that the G20 has met against since its inaugural meeting in 2008. But against that backdrop, there was still a lot of discussion about economic growth. And to talk about what they really mean by economic growth and what the political agenda was at the G20, we're joined today by Dr. Patricia Ranald, who's coordinator of the Australian Free Trade and Invest... There I go slipping into the G20 rhetoric, the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Patricia is a long-time campaigner against free trade agreements and uh, 3CR listeners would have heard her on previous interviews before. Um, Patricia, thanks for joining us again on Stick Together. Oh, Thank you. So tell us more about what the G20 really is. You know, the background to all of this is that the G20 only developed because global organisations like the UN and the World Trade Organisation have ended up being totally unworkable. You know, why has the US in particular um, preferred the G20 to forums like the UN or the WTO? Well, the G20 began life as the G8, which was a post-war construction which consisted only of the largest and richest economies in the world. It was expanded into the G20, which includes some representation from the larger developing countries like Russia, China, Argentina, Brazil, India, um, and a few of the smaller developing countries. So it was expanded to the G20, but it's still not a very representative body. And it it doesn't actually have any decision-making powers. It is mostly a forum for discussion and promoting certain ideas. And, of course, 
the economic ideas that it promotes are very much the neoliberal, um, rather conservative economic ideas. Uh, so, for instance, the Abbott government was very much pushing its program of budget cuts, privatisation, austerity at the G20. Although it's interesting that because the G20 is now a bit broader than it used to be, there are probably some players there who don't see that as the salvation of the global economy. So there are some um, economies represented there, like, say, Brazil or South Africa, who might have a slightly different view yes, about the, what's needed for ec economic growth. Yeah, these BRICS countries um, met just before the G20, didn't they? The BRICS countries being Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Um, how does their agenda differ to Australia and its allies? And how does that sort of difference of position play out at the G20? Well, first of all, some of those are developing countries and they have different priorities. I'm not saying that they have a perfect economic program, but they do have different priorities from the largest and strongest uh, economies like the USA and Japan. And they certainly don't have the same ideological gender agenda in terms of austerity and um, sort of flat earth free trade that... Um, for instance, the Australian government has. And, of course, the whole issue of climate change, Australia didn't even want that on the agenda, or Prime Minister Abbott didn't, but um, at the insistence of some other countries, including China and the US um, it, and Europe, it did get onto the agenda. Yeah, well, let's move on to so, some of the other issues that were discussed at the, the G20. Obviously, we hear a lot about economic growth as the catchphrase of meetings like this. But what, do, what does the US bloc interpret economic growth to mean? Well, I think it's very contradictory because, again, um, it's not just the US, but our government is probably one of... Tony Abbott is one of the most extreme um, proponents of the idea that um, you can somehow... Um, cut government spending and cut demand in the economy and yet still have economic growth, which is really a nonsense. Actually, the, um, these policies have also been enacted in the US, but mainly through the US Congress insisting on budget cuts. So there's an internal um, division there because the US Congress is dominated by Republicans. Um, but in broader terms, if you look at the global issues like free trade, um, the speech that President Obama made at the University of Queensland, he um, very much promoted the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which is a free trade agreement uh, between the US, Australia and Japan and nine other countries um, in the Pacific, around the Pacific Rim, which um, is very much promoting the interests of um, U the US major export industries like the pharmaceutical industries and media industries. So um, through the TPP, they're trying to get um, longer and stronger monopoly rights for pharmaceutical companies over medicines. So that will result in higher medicines prices. The media companies want um, stronger copyright um, so that they will get more income from, especially from copyrighted works like movies and other um, productions that are downloaded on the internet and they want to make, um, they want to criminalise uh, breaches of copyright to 
to uh, so that if you breach copyright, you will not just get a fine; you could actually go to prison. So that what the, those two issues are about are expanding monopoly rights for um, global corporations. They're not about free trade at all. But the US is trying to make those rules a regional standard and then eventually a global standard. But the most pernicious thing in the um, TPP is a proposal which the US tries to push in all its trade agreements, which is giving foreign investors the right to sue governments for damages, in some cases billions of dollars, if a change in law or policy harms or can be alleged to harm their investment. Now, we've already seen an example of this in the Philip Morris Tobacco Company using an obscure Hong Kong investment agreement to sue the Australian government over plain packaging legislation, even though it was passed by our parliament and they lost their case for damages in the Australian High Court. So they've said, we don't care about your parliament or your High Court, we're going off to Hong Kong to, f to find this obscure agreement and we're suing your government for billions of dollars. And there have been cases of under the North American Free Trade Agreement of US companies suing Canada over the regulation of gas mining, environmental regulation of gas mining. There's the Eli Lilly pharmaceutical company suing Canada over the um, a court decision refusing them a patent for a drug which was very similar to other drugs, so there was a valid reason for refusing them a patent and allowing them monopoly rights over such a drug. And... Um, a more recent case, which is very shocking to those in the labour movement, is that Veolia, a French company, is suing the Egyptian government um, over a contract it was involved in for waste disposal. But one of the, the main issues they're claiming damages for is a rise in the minimum wage, which took place after the Egyptian Democratic Revolution in 2011. So you can see that through this arrangement of allowing investors to sue governments, it's a real challenge to the sovereignty and democracy of governments being able to pass, especially any progressive legislation on the environment, on health, public health, or even on um, industrial relations like a rise in the minimum wage. And we um, have been campaigning hard against the whole TPP, but especially against that provision in the TPP. We're speaking to Dr Patricia Ranald, who's coordinator of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network about the the corporate-driven and free trade agenda that was behind a lot of the discussions that took place at the G20 in Brisbane. Um, Patricia, another high-profile free trade agreement that has been discussed for about a decade now is the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement. Um, only mm, half an hour or so before you and I um, started speaking today, President Xi Jinping from China finished his address to the Australian Parliament. And um, we may not be able to update listeners on exactly what he said, but we already know generally what kind of, of issues or what kind of areas are likely to be included in this free trade agreement. And at 3CR, you know, we try to you know, take the perspective where we see social development above business profit. And so viewing it through that lens, how should we look at the China-Australia free trade agreement? Well, Australia already has. I mean, China's already our second biggest trading partner. Uh, and so... Um, I don't see huge advantages, even at an economic level, from this agreement between Australia and China. 
um, apparently the, the problem we have, and this is often done by governments, is that they announce with great fanfare that they've reached agreement but the text of the agreement is not available to be scrutinised, and this is the case today. So we have to rely on their own summary of what's in the text rather than being able to look at the detail of the text. And as someone who's studied trade agreements for a long time, the devil is really in the detail. But from what we know from the summaries that have been published, I see there are two main problems with this agreement. First of all, it may contain this right of investors to sue governments because such a provision was included in the uh, China-New Zealand Free Trade Agreement, which, is, which was signed a few years ago and which apparently this agreement is partly modelled on. And secondly, um, there is a lot of um, controversy about the labour mobility provisions in this agreement. Again, we don't know the exact detail, but what has been reported in the press um, from government summaries is that Australia has offered more to China in the way of labour mobility than already exists under the current Visa 457 provisions, which enable temporary workers, supposedly in areas of skill shortage, to come and work in Australia. Now, um, what's been reported is that for certain major projects in which there are Chinese investors, there will be additional workers allowed to come uh, to Australia and work temporarily. Uh, and the worry about this is um, that um, there may not be proper labour market testing, in other words, testing whether um, local workers are in fact available in Australia, and we might see a model of major projects where um, the, uh, quite a lot of the workforce actually comes to work in Australia on the project from the investing country. Um, and that, of course, reduces the benefits to Australia in terms of jobs and income flows to our economy um, that, would have, um, that, are, that are supposed to come from major projects. Well, it's customary at G20 meetings ever since the G20 first met in 2008 that trade unionists form an L20, a, a Labor 20 that meets parallel to the G20 and develops policy recommendations that it delivers to the, the G20 you know, leaders and representatives. Mm. But for the first time this year, Tony Abbott revealed how much more you know, sort of right-wing he is even than most G20 delegates in that for the first time he prevented the L20 from having access to G20 leaders. Well, I think their access was very restricted and um, they did present a whole alternative um, program for genuine um, economic development which is based on economic modelling that shows that actually by increasing um, wages and working conditions and raising the spending power of workers, particularly in areas like Europe um, and other areas that are currently experiencing recession, that this could contribute to economic growth. Um, and it also advocated a, a program of public investment in public services like health and education and infrastructure, which again will not only employ people and stimulate demand in the economy, but also um, provide the underpinnings for um, real productive um, economic growth. And also um, 
the ACTU has put out a media release rejecting Tony Abbott's austerity program and saying it's going to actually lead um, to recession in Australia if it's implemented uh, rather than economic growth. That was Dr Patricia Ranald, the coordinator of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network called AFTINET. And AFTINET's done a lot of work on these corporate-driven free trade agreements and you can find their resources on the website www.aftinet.org.au. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. While the leaders of the biggest economies of the world were doing their best at the G20 to make sure big multinational companies and their bosses get even richer, the majority of the world continues to live in a very different reality. Hunger and poverty continues to plague most of the third world, with state terror the major factor in maintaining inequality. An example of this comes from Mexico, a country that participated in the G20 talks and a country whose government has a track record of using extreme violence to silence dissent. Here we have an excerpt of Democracy Now! with a special piece on the disappearance of 43 students from a teacher's college. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We're talking about the disappearance of 43 students at the hands of police in the southern Mexican state of Guerrero. This is Ernest Checano, a first-year student at Ayotzinapa Teachers College who survived the police attack. He's responding to the claim by Attorney General Jesus Murillo Caram that the students were killed and their bodies burned by a local drug gang. He's just doing this to wash his hands of the problem and appear that he's doing something. It's obvious that it is not that way. It is obvious that the Attorney General just seems like he is looking for the compañeros. One thing that really bothers me is that this personality, the Attorney General Mario Curam, and all the other people in charge of looking for my compañeros are looking for them as if they are dead instead of alive. If the municipal police took away my compañeros while they were alive, why the heck are those people looking for them dead? That was Ernesto Checano, a first-year student at Ayotzinapa Teachers College. This is Omar Garcia, another student from the school who survived the police attack. We hope the actions get more intense, so that it is not just all talk. We need real action. We don't have anything against the buildings or the street pavement. We have everything against the institutions, against the government structure. We want to change this country. We want people who are within these institutions to be honest people, people from our communities, not just people who are there for their own interests. Right now, they are just making it a political issue, pitting one against another, saying, you knew the mayor, I went to a dance with him, or you went out drinking with him. All are involved in some way, including we as a society, who have been accomplices for closing our eyes and keeping silent. We have to end this complicity. 
Special thanks to Andalusia Noel for this footage as she is in Guerrero covering these protests. John Gibbler with us, author, independent journalist in Mexico, author of Mexico Unconquered, as well as more recently To Die in Mexico, Dispatches from Inside the Drug War. As you hear these students um, talking, uh, the students of the teacher's college that was attacked, we still don't understand, on the day that this happened, why did the mayor have the police round up these students? What was going on that day in town? Um, we still don't know why, what the mayor was thinking. His, his statements to the press have been uh, cynical and, and obviously laden with lies. On the students' behalf, we should recall that there, there was never a protest, even though that's been widely repeated in the English-language press. There was no plan to go to Iguala to interrupt the mayor's uh, wife's ceremony. Um, they, most of the, the students who were attacked that night were freshmen. They had been at Ayotzinapa for only a matter of weeks. In fact, that Friday, for many, was their first day of classes. Most of these people who come from some of the most economically battered municipalities in Mexico and perhaps in the Western Hemisphere had no idea who the mayor of Iguala was. Um, it, it, I think what, what happened speaks to two things. One, it shows the full merger between police forces and local governance and organized crime. I don't think it's, it's possible anymore to talk about corruption. The idea of corruption no longer has any kind of descriptive power. But what we have is two sectors of an industry that have fully merged, uh, the police and the drug or organized crime gangs themselves, and the confluence of two forms of violence, the, the classic state violence of repression and the, the kind of newish forms of narco brutality, or the, the violence associated with um, organized crime organizations here. The, again, the, the police attack to round up, detain, beat, arrest, um, perhaps shoot a few students. This is something that's been going on against the, the Ayotzinapa students for years. In fact, on December 12, 2011, state police shot and killed during a protest action um, on the highway two students. Um, that case still remains also an impunity. No one has been punished. Uh, but also the, the mix with the, the, the forms of terror. Forced disappearance has a long and sordid history as a practice of state violence in Mexico, but very particularly in Guerrero, which during the, the so-called Dirty War of the 1970s, half of the people disappeared in Mexico were disappeared in Guerrero State. So that's a long-standing state practice of violence. But this removal of, of uh, Julio Cesar Mondragon's face, the gouging out of his eyes, the displaying of that body, I think testifies or shows the, the merger confluence of state violence and so-called narco-violence. On Friday, Mexico's Attorney General Jesus Murillo Caram gave the spreading outrage a new rallying cry uh, when he ended his news conference in Mexico City by saying, Yamakanse, enough, I'm tired. The remark has been taken up by protesters who see the attack in Iguala as part of the systemic failure by the state. Filmmaker Natalia Berestein was among hundreds who posted videos from, with the hashtag Yamakanse. Señor Murillo Karam, soy Natalia Beristein. Señor Murillo Karam, I am Natalia Beristein, and I, too, am tired. I'm tired of disappeared Mexicans, of the femicides, of the dead, of the decapitated, 
of the bodies hanging from bridges, of the broken families, of the mothers without children, of the children without parents. I'm tired of the political class that has kidnapped my country and of the class that corrupts, that lies, that kills. I, too, I'm tired. The president, uh, Peña Nieto, uh, is with, went to China with President Obama with the meeting, uh, with the meetings of APEC. Peña Nieto has been championed in the U.S. press for his neoliberal reforms, appearing on the cover of Time magazine earlier this year with the headline, Saving Mexico. So can you put this in this broader context? How does this crisis reflect on him and what's happening in Mexico, John, as the Mexican ambassador to the United States this morning said, we are all together uh, holding those accountable. We've arrested more than 70 people, he said, including the mayor and his wife, etc. I think this is the first major uh, kind of crack in Peña Nieto's veneer. He had been enjoying a, a kind of love affair with the international press, which I think is epitomized by the Time magazine cover. He was presented, Peña Nieto was presented as the, the president of reforms, energy and education reforms. He had busted an old school corrupt union boss. He had grabbed El Chapo. It seemed like everybody, especially again in the English language press, was in love with Peña Nieto. But now with municipal police ordered by the mayor, rounding up, murdering, disappearing students, uh, leaving six people dead, 43 disappeared. Um, the army base three miles away and the army never interceding on behalf of the, the victims. It completely destroys the, the myth of a Mexico that had been saved, to quote Time magazine, by this political official. And again, as Ernesto, the young survivor of the attacks, had said, what's most outraged the, the parents, the survivors, and the classmates of the 43 disappeared has precisely been that the government, after weeks of ineptitude, and foot dragging, when they finally started looking for the students, they looked for them in mass graves. They looked for them dead in the forms of bones and ash. And the parents are very intense and clear in their demands. The students were taken away alive by the police, bring them back alive. That was an excerpt from Democracy Now! on their special about the 43 students from a teacher's college that were disappeared in Mexico on the 26th of September this year. The disappearance of these students has sparked mass outrage and a well-organised response, with the teachers' union being at the forefront of the protests. Here is a small excerpt from an article on the Telesur English website. On the 14th of November, members of the National Coordinating Committee of Education Workers took over government administration buildings in 113 towns of Michoacan on Thursday to demand an intensification of the search for the missing students. The teachers marched through the capital city of Morelia and rallied outside the town council building. They then headed for the municipal president's office that was surrounded by police. CNTE members took over government offices throughout the state to demand the return of the students, respect for teachers' training schools and the reversal of recently adopted neoliberal education reforms. That was an excerpt from the Telesaur English website, but that's all we have time for this week on Stick Together. If you want to find out more about the protests in Mexico, you can log on to the Telesaur website, 
Telesur, T-E-L-E-S-U-R-T-V.net, or you can listen to that entire Democracy Now! episode about Mexico at democracynow.org. And of course, if you want to tell your friends about the Stick Together show, you can go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and look for Stick Together. Thank you also to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for its financial support of the program. And of course, thank you for listening. Hope you can tune in again at the same time next week.